Tonight, if you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. If you're new with us, we are working our way through the book of Joshua on Sunday morning here at Calvary, looking at it as an instruction manual on victorious Christian living. For a lot of reasons, we're doing this, and uh, we believe that God has placed this book in the Old Testament not just for our historical record of the nation of Israel, but also, as Paul said, these things were written for our learning that we can take principles from all the books in the Old Testament, but this one is really rich. Principles that we can use to, uh, to walk our walk and to have victory in our lives. And as we said, the book uh, of Joshua falls into three main divisions. Entering the land, chapters 1 through 5. Conquering the land, chapters 6 through 21. And then keeping the land, chapters 22 through 24. Now, we are in that first section the first five chapters dealing with the theme of entering into the land. And we've already looked at the person of victory in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the promise of victory, verses 3 through 5. We looked last time at the power for victory in verses 5 through 9. And now that brings us to the preparation for victory. And this one is, of course, the longest of these other ones. It goes from verse 10 of chapter 1, all the way through verse 15 of chapter 5. Now, this morning, and of course you realize we will never get that far today. You know that. But we will finish chapter 1. That's the good news. Let's read verses 10 through 18. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan, and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving to you to possess. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half of the tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God has given you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, And help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you. And they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it. Which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. So they answered Joshua saying, all that you command us we will do. And wherever you send us we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things. So we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. Now there's a lot of things we could glean from this passage. And there's a lot of different directions we could come at it. But the direction I want to come at it from this morning is this one. We notice in these verses that there are two groups mentioned. The first group consists of the tribes that were going to live on the west side of the Jordan River in the land of Canaan, what we call the promised land. And then you have the second group made up of the tribes that had decided to live on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, it is to this second group I want to draw your attention to this morning because there are some important lessons to be learned through them. Let me just set this up. Now, first of all, the second group of tribes consists of the tribe of Reuben, Gad, 
and half of the tribe of Manasseh. And let me set this up by giving you some, some background. You'll find this in Numbers 32. Here's what happened. The children of Israel, of course, have not crossed over into the promised land yet. Obviously, that's true. And at one point, they, uh, they defeated a couple of kings on the east side of the Jordan. And the land of these kings was very fertile. In fact, it was good for raising livestock. So the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh came to Moses and said, you know what, we don't want to possess the land on the west side of the Jordan. Hey, this is good land right here. We've got a lot of flocks and herds, a lot of livestock. This, this land is perfect for raising livestock. So you know what, we want to stay on this side of the Jordan. We want this to be our inheritance. Now I'm paraphrasing. Moses said, are you out of your minds? Don't you realize that we wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because your forefathers wouldn't go over and possess the land that he was giving them? And because of it, God drove us back into the wilderness where we have, where we have wandered for 40 years. And now finally we've come to the end of this wandering. And we're ready to enter in. And now you tell me we don't want to go in. I mean, don't you understand? God will drive us back out into the wilderness for another 40 years. They said, Mo, take it easy. You don't understand what we're saying. Yeah, we want to inherit this land on the east side of the Jordan. But understand, we will go in with our brethren, our mighty men of valor, fully armed. We will go in with them into the land of Canaan, and we will fight alongside of them for however long it takes until they have gained the victory and they take possession of their inheritance, and then we want to come back and live on the east side of the Jordan River. And Moses said, well, if you promise to do this, if you keep your word... And you go ahead and you fight with your brethren until they have defeated the enemy. Yes, then you can go ahead and possess the land on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, a lot of people, including myself, have a problem with that whole deal. And you might be thinking, well, what's so wrong with that? I mean, you know, the land on the east side of the Jordan was ideal for raising livestock. They had plenty of livestock. You know, it makes sense that they should choose the land on that side as opposed to crossing over and taking possession of the land there in Canaan. What's the big deal? The big deal is that the land on the east side of the Jordan was not the land God had promised them, right? It was not the place that God had intended them to live. In other words, it was not God's best for their lives. Instead of trusting God and believing that, even though the land on the east side of the Jordan River was better for their physical prosperity, I mean, rich pasture land produces healthy livestock. Healthy livestock tend to reproduce more. So even though the land on the east side of the Jordan was, was more beneficial for their physical prosperity, the land on the west side of the Jordan, the promised land, that was God's best for their life. And that was going to be far more conducive to their spiritual prosperity than to live anywhere else, no matter how good it looked, right? When God says, this is where I want you to be, this is where I want you to live, and I'm talking, you know, allegorically, this is where I want your life to be. That's the best place you can possibly be, right? To settle for any other place, that would become less than God's best for your life. And I really think this is what's in view here. We see in these verses here, one of the oldest struggles that we all face as people of God. This is one of the most basic struggles we all wrestle with as Christians. And that is, are we going to live by faith or are we going to live by sight 
God says, do this. We read his word. God says, do this. And we say, Lord, that's what we want to do. But we go out into the world, and all week long the devil is trying to get us to compromise on what God has said. You're a salesman. And you know these are tough times. You've got to really present your product in such a way that you have some kind of an advantage over the competition. So the tendency is, well, maybe I'll kind of fudge the facts a little bit. Maybe I'll kind of overstate the product's benefits or whatever it might be. But, you know, God understands, right? These are tough times. I've got to do this, right? Because if I don't, I can't provide for my family. We can justify anything, can't we? The issue is, are we going to trust God and do what's right and trust him to provide? Or are we going to take things into our own hands? Are we going to look at the situation and live by sight and not by faith and say, well, I know what God has said, but looking at the situation, I really can't obey God fully, but he understands, right? No, God understands obedience. And everything in life is a test. Are we going to obey God and walk by faith and trust him? regardless of the circumstance, doing what he has told us to do? Or are we going to take matters into our own hands and live by sight rather than faith and try to work things out according to what we think should be done and then ask God to somehow bless it? You know, I'm, I'm convinced that the greatest decision that, we're going to, that we face on a daily basis as God's people is not choosing between, listen, the good and the bad. I'm hoping that all of us in this room, as we have walked with the Lord for any length of time, uh, it's becoming easier and easier every day to choose between the good and the bad. You know, we want to stay away from the bad, right? We're not, you know, we when we came to Christ, we wanted to let go of the bad in our lives. We wanted to stop drinking and hanging out with people that that, that encourage us to get into destructive behaviors and drugs and and all kinds of other things. So I'm convinced, not that we never struggle between the good and the bad, but I think in general, for children of God who have walked with Him for any length of time. The real struggle that we face is not choosing between the good and the bad. It's choosing between the good and the best. That's, I think, where most of us stumble. There are things in our Christian life that is not sinful to do. They're good. But are they God's best at that moment? And look, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I mean, there's all kinds of things we could plug in here to illustrate this. I mean, it's not wrong, though, if you work all day and you work hard, you come home and you're tired. It's Bible study night, but after all, you've had a really exhausting day. I just want to sit and veg out. I want to watch the ball game. Hey, is that evil? No, it's not evil. Is it okay to do that? Sure it is. Is it God's best for the moment, though? No, not really. And we have to decide. See, this is where the devil really trips us up. Because I know that if you love the Lord, you want to do what's right. You don't want to sin. The devil knows that. So he says, okay, well, I can't get this person to sin, you know, as much as I'd like. So what I will do is I'll come along with an alternative that is not really sinful, but will not promote God's best for their life. You know, Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 10, he said, you know, all things are lawful for me. Now, now don't get Paul wrong. He wasn't saying all things like lying and stealing and murdering, that kind of thing. All things that are morally neutral. Watching a ball game is morally neutral. All things that are morally neutral are lawful for me. But not everything that is morally neutral is going to help me in my race for Christ. And Paul says, I want to run my race to win. I don't want anything to hinder my growth or my progress in the Lord. And a lot of morally neutral stuff can be used by the devil to get you away from the stuff that's going to help you to 
grow and become stronger in the Lord. And I kind of believe this is exactly what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us uh, by, by using these two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, to illustrate to us that the choice between choosing God's best and then settling for what is good, but is not really God's best. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute now. If that's the case, and living on the east side of the Jordan was not really God's best for them, why did Moses allow it? Why didn't he force them to enter into the... Why did he say, no way, uh-uh, you're going into the promised land. Get in there, we're all going in together. You're not going to hang out here on the east side. No, we're all going in together. Well, why did Moses allow them to live on that side of the Jordan River? It is because every believer has to choose for themselves at what level of faith and commitment they are going to live at for the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ does not even force us to be saved, right? He lets us choose that. But he invites us to come, right? He invites us to come to him for salvation. He said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. He invites us to come to be saved. And even after we receive him as Lord and Savior, even then he doesn't force us to live at a certain level of spirituality or commitment. He pretty much allows us to choose at what level we are going to live at in the Christian life. And you know what? Whatever level we choose to live at, God is so gracious and loves us so much, he will do his best for us at that level. But the higher we want to go, the higher he'll lift us. But it's up to us. See, I don't believe living on the east side of the Jordan was a sin for them back then. If it was, I don't think God would have allowed Moses to say it was okay. See, I don't think it was a sin, but it wasn't God's best either. And for a person not to choose God's best for their life, I don't think it's a sin. But it's definitely a shame. It's definitely a shame. Philip Keller in his commentary on the book of Joshua said this, and I quote, he said, The profound spiritual principle at work here applies always to God's people. We are given the free will choice to decide for ourselves at what level of spiritual attainment we will live in our walk with God. We can walk in the wilderness of divided loyalties and divided affections until the day we die. We can settle down cozily just a short way from the life of conquest and of victory to be content with only a distant view of our inheritance in Christ or with courage, faith, and joy in the Lord. We can enter fully into the victory and rest intended for us by our Heavenly Father, end quote. The choice is ours. God lets us choose our conduct, but guess what? He doesn't let us choose our consequences. All decisions in life carry with them certain consequences, some small, some large, but consequences nonetheless for us and for those who are closest to us, and I'm thinking primarily of our immediate family. As I've already pointed out, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh chose to live on the east side of the Jordan River. Why? Numbers 32, verses 1 through 5 especially tell us that they had much livestock, and this area was perfect for raising and multiplying livestock. So their decision to live on the east side of the Jordan was based on their material prosperity instead of on their spiritual prosperity for themselves and their families. It's kind of like the, uh, and I've seen this over the years, it's kind of like the man who is a believer, but makes decisions based on the bottom line of money. And I've seen guys who will take jobs in areas, good paying jobs, but there's no good church there. There's no true fellowship 
with other believers there. But after all, it's good money. And I want the best for my family. And I understand that. But the best for your family is giving them a strong relationship with God. is passing on to them a strong, godly foundation and heritage in the Lord. That's the best thing you can do for your family. Today as Americans, though, I'm sorry to say, we make way too many decisions based on the bottom line money, how it's going to impact my, my physical prosperity instead of how it's going to affect me and my family in our spiritual walk with God. This story reminds me of another story in the Scripture. Remember the story of Abraham and Lot? Lot was Abraham's nephew. And they were dwelling together in the same area. And they, and they both had a lot of livestock, a lot of flocks and herds and so on. And their flocks became so numerous that there wasn't enough grazing land. And so the shepherds of both of the different flocks and all began to fight. Lot's shepherds with Abraham's shepherds. And, you know, Abraham said, look, we're family. Now, he was the older man. Lot should have deferred to Abraham and said, look, you're the elder. You choose where you want to live. But Abraham didn't do that. Abraham was a man of faith. He said, Lot, look, I'm going to let you choose where you want to live, where you want to take your herds and flocks and so on. Wherever you choose to live, I'll go the other way. So what did Lot do? It says that he lifted up his eyes and looked at the plain of Jericho, how it was well watered. Excuse me, the plain of Jordan. It was well watered, ideal for raising livestock and so on, just like these guys. And Lot said, I want that area. Well, you know what cities were in the plain of Jordan? Sodom and Gomorrah, among others. And as the story progresses, we see that Lot pitches his tent towards Sodom. Twenty years later, he's not living outside the city now. He's living in the city, and he's an alderman in the city. Sodom completely absorbed him and his family, and through it all, Lot lost his family. He chose what was best for them on a material prosperity level, but not what was best for them on a spiritual prosperity level, and he lost his family. It says, Abraham, he dwelt in the land of Canaan. You know, I know a lot of guys who violate the principle the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us. They let money be the bottom line for all their decisions. I have seen men who have told me that they had a great job offer, making good money in some area that they were going to move the family to this area. And I say to them, well, uh, how many good churches are out there? Well, I don't really know. In fact, it's kind of out in the boondock, so I don't even know if there is any good churches out there. Well, why are you moving your family out to a place where there's no good fellowship, there's no good churches? Well, the money's good. I can't turn that down. I hope you don't live to regret that. And many of them have lived to regret it because there's so much more to life than the bottom line making money. God will take care of your needs. But we have to put the spiritual above all else. We have to make decisions that put God first and the spiritual health of ourselves and our families right up there. Because in so doing that, God will lead our lives in all the right paths and he will take care of all our physical needs. Whenever we get things out of whack and begin to put the, the physical above the spiritual and make decisions based on that, well, guess what? We always suffer. And it's usually our little ones that suffer the most. I want you to notice something, too about the decision that these two and a half tribes made. As you read the Old Testament, you come to realize in years to come that the descendants of these tribes would come to regret the decision their forefathers had made concerning where they chose to settle. Sure, they had good grazing land on the east side of the Jordan, but they gradually became more and more cut off from the national and spiritual life of Israel. See, 
they weren't really among God's people. They were off on the side. Where was the temple of God? That was in the land of Canaan, which became the land of Israel. That's the spiritual, that was the spiritual center of the nation. They were disconnected. They were cut off. And as time went on, they became more and more disconnected. Nationally, spiritually, and years later, because they had separated themselves from the nation to live on the east side of the Jordan River, which, by the way, the Jordan River acted as a natural barrier against enemies. It was a natural protection that separated them from enemy nations. But because they lived on the other side of the Jordan, they did not have that natural protective barrier against their enemies. And so we read later on in the Old Testament that these were the first tribes to be attacked and taken captive by the Assyrians. Why do you think we are told as Christians in the New Testament not to forsake the fellowship of God's people in the local church? There's a lot of reasons for that. Let me give you one of the main ones. It's because... There is a spiritual protection that God covers us with when we are plugged into and in unity with a local group of believers in a local church setting. This is why Paul told the people in Corinth, because there was a guy living there who was living with his own stepmother, and they weren't doing anything about it. He said, look, this is ridiculous. You've got to do something. If this guy loves the world so much, you've got to put him out of the church back into the world so that Satan can beat him up for a while, and hopefully he'll get his life right. See, you see what Paul is saying? In the local assembly of God's people, there is an umbrella of protection that God covers us with. That doesn't mean that we're exempt from all attacks of the devil. That doesn't mean that we have no problems. It just means the devil can't really get at us the way he would like to as long as we're unified with each other. Jesus said, against my church, the gates of hell would not prevail. That's why the devil's always trying to peel us off from the body. What is the first thing Christians do when they start going through difficult times? Often they isolate themselves from the body. That doesn't help the problem. It exacerbates it. Because when you isolate yourself from the body, which is God's way of protecting you, now you really give yourselves over to the attacks of the devil who wants to carry you away captive again into the same old sins God delivered you from. Now, to their credit, these two and a half tribes did cross over the Jordan. They did fight alongside their brethren against the enemy. They did help their brethren drive out the enemy from their inheritance so that they did keep their word to Moses and Joshua as they had promised. And so we we give them credit for that. For a while they did fight the good fight and they did taste victory over the enemy. But when their service to their brethren was over, sadly they were content to go back to the land east of the Jordan and live there. Now folks, I don't want to over-spiritualize this But I really see something here I want to bring out just quickly. I have known many Christians over the years who have fought the battles of the Lord for a while in ministry and have helped others defeat the enemy in their lives. Isn't that what ministry is all about? Coming alongside people and praying with them and encouraging them and keeping them accountable and and helping them to defeat the enemies in their lives, the enemies of alcoholism or, or drug addiction or whatever it might be, right? That's what ministry is. We, we help one another. We come alongside of each other. And we, we assist each other. And we fight together with them against the enemies that they face. And I've seen many people in ministry over my years in ministry that have done that very thing. And they have gone ahead and they have fought the battles of the Lord for the people of God. And helped others be delivered and help others defeat the enemies in their lives. Only to decide at one point that they've had enough. And they've opted 
to remove themselves from ministry, and many then went on to isolate themselves from the assembly of God's people. David fought the battles of the Lord for many years. When he got into his mid-50s, he built himself a new cedar palace, kicked back and said, I've had it. I'm tired of living in the trenches. I'm tired of being out in the fields fighting the battles of the Lord. Let the young guys go out there. Let them fight the battles of the Lord. I'm going to kick back. I'm going to enjoy the fruits of my labor. Of course, all that idle time, which is the devil's workshop, they tell us, caused David one night to walk on a patio on top of his palace and down below on a rooftop, he could see a beautiful woman bathing. He sent servants over. They took her and she came and he lay with her. And you know the whole sordid details of that ugly ugly uh, period in David's uh, life with Bathsheba. We must be out fighting the battles of the Lord. It not only helps others, it helps us to stay strong. But I've seen people do this. I've seen people serve the Lord for a while and be victorious. And um, God blesses their ministries. Then at one point, as I said, they decide they've had enough. No more ministry. And after they get step out of ministry, then usually what happens is then I see them less and less in church until finally they're not coming to church anymore either. And you try to call them, you know, how you doing? We haven't seen you. Know, yeah, I've been a little busy, but I'll get back to church next week. Never see them. Then after a while, they stop returning your phone calls. Then I get reports from people that have run into them on the street or at the store, and they're not doing well at all. They're totally back into the world. I have seen that, you know, when people do that, when they get out of ministry, begin to isolate themselves from the local church, they begin to move farther and farther away from God and his word. And after a while, they begin, and this doesn't happen to everybody, but I've seen it happen to many of God's people. After a while, they begin to think and act again like the unbelieving world around them, and it's not good. And that really is what happened to these, these tribes. Reuben, Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh. And again, it doesn't happen overnight. We begin to drift away from the Lord slowly. For a while, we don't even realize we are drifting away from the Lord. But enough time goes by, and you look at your life and you go, how did I get here? How did I get here? That's what happened to these two and a half tribes. We read in Luke chapter 8, how at one point Jesus got into a boat and crossed the Sea of Galilee to the area of the Gadarenes. The Jews that lived in this area were members of the tribe of Gad. What did Jesus find when he stepped out of that boat? Was this a blessed town? Was this a blessed area where people were filled with the Spirit, strong in the Lord, serving God with their whole heart? What did he find? He found a land filled with pigs and demons. Speaking of physically and spiritually unclean things. The people had obviously given themselves over to occult practices. The story zeroes in on two guys, one in particular, that were so filled with demons, were so demon-possessed. Nobody gets that demon-possessed that hasn't opened the door wide to the spirit realm and not the Holy Spirit. And this one guy in particular was so filled with demons that they called themselves legion when Jesus asked for their name. A legion in a Roman army is 6,000 men. Was this guy filled with 6,000 demons? We don't know. We do know that when Jesus cast the demons out, they went into 2,000 pigs that were being raised in the area. What were Jews doing raising pigs? They were unclean animals. What are Christians doing involved working in defiled jobs? 
where they have to lie and they have to misrepresent or even steal. What, what is that all about? And Jesus in his mercy cast the demons out of this one guy. Set him free. He was separated from his family for years. He had to live in the tombs by himself because he was so ferocious. Nobody could, nobody could, he couldn't live in a civilized environment. They chained him in the tombs. He would bust the chains. They would hear him at night moaning and weeping and wailing. A pathetic person in bondage. His sin had led to this. He would cut himself with rocks. His family had not seen him for years probably. And here Jesus cast the demons out of him. And it says that after he did, the man was sitting peaceful, clothed, and in his right mind. You would think that that would have made the people in this area, these Jews, these were not pagans. They were Jewish people. They knew the God of Israel. You would think that that would have been a cause to rejoice. How did they respond? They came to Jesus and said, we don't want you here. You need to leave. Just like people often treat you who represent Jesus, who when a person has walked away from God for a long time, And you try to go to them and you try to recover them. They don't want to hear it. They don't want anything to do with God. They're done with that chapter in their life. They don't want to hear it from you. They want you just to leave them alone. Get out of here. I don't want to talk about it. Again, it doesn't happen overnight. But in the course of time, it definitely happens. And this is what happens. This is the consequence when you choose compromise over total commitment, your walk with God begins to disintegrate. Your morals for God begin to degenerate. And after a while, you really don't want anything to do with God or his people. You want to just be left alone. And it's very sad. There's no peace. There's no freedom. They're like that poor, pathetic, demon-possessed individual. No freedom chained to the tombs. No peace I mean, there is only peace in our God, right? There is only joy in the Lord. In his presence is fullness of joy. Alan Redpath, in his commentary on the book of Joshua, said, and I quote, he said, the question of where we spend our Christian experience and on what level we live our Christian life is left for us to choose. I may enjoy the blessing of Canaan for a while. I may enter into the land of full blessing. I may go with the people of God over this Jordan, up out of the wilderness. I may share some of the victories that are mine in Jesus, but I may yet be caught by sin, trapped by worldliness, beaten by compromise, and ensnared by the devil. In other words, folks, it isn't how well you start in your Christian life. It's how well you finished. It's how well you finish. You know, as I read the Old Testament, it's always troubled me to read of some of the kings of Judah. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel had no good kings, but the southern kingdom had about eight different good kings. And it's always troubled me as I read, as I've read their uh, lives uh, in Scripture, how that many of them started out really well in their walk and ministry for God. Godly men who love the Lord, who led the nation in the fear of God, that kind of thing. But somewhere along the way, they had moved away from the Lord. 
And then towards the end of their life, we see many of them blow it through sexual immorality, through materialism or pride, and they wind up being removed from ministry and dying in a backslidden state. That's always haunted me. You know, Jesus wants to be able to say to all of us one day, well done, not well begun. Well done. Even some of the greatest champions of the faith, guys like Moses and David, made some mistakes toward the end of their lives and brought upon themselves and their families, in David's case, severe consequences, even then marring in some way their ministry for the Lord. After all those years of faithful service, there was a black mark on their ministry, a footnote, a sad little asterisk. Yes, he loved the Lord, but this happened. He didn't guard himself in this area or whatever it might be. Look, the road to heaven is littered with the sad testimonies of men and women who started off good for God, but didn't wind up finishing well. And I'm not saying they lost their salvation. I'm just saying they lost a lot of their rewards. You know, I've mentioned Vance Havner. He's a great old Baptist preacher. I remember him uh, on a tape I was listening to one time. He was saying how he grew up at the in an area in the south at the foothills of the uh, Appalachian Mountains. Beautiful area, sounded like, as he described it, you know. He said, as a kid, we'd, we'd play outside all summer day. I mean, it was beautiful. We'd, we'd swim in the creeks, and we just had a great time. And, and the only thing my parents would say to us before we started our day is, make sure you're home before dark. Make sure you're home before dark. He says, I got, as I got older, I began to preach. And I'd go to different places around the area to preach the gospel. He says, and when I got home, I'd come home in the train, and my dad would always be waiting for me at the train station. And the first thing he said to me when I got off that train was, how'd you get along? And he said that always stuck with me, because I knew that my father, as soon as I got home, was always going to ask me, how'd you get along? He said, I knew also that one day when I went home to heaven, my heavenly father, was going to say to me, how'd you get along? And I wanted to be able to say to him, Father, I served you with all my heart. I didn't let anything hinder my relationship with you. He said it became my goal to make sure I got home to my home in heaven before it got dark. I wanted to be home before it got dark. I wanted to be home in heaven before anything happened in my ministry that would bring a black mark upon my faithful years of service and somehow do dishonor to the name of my Lord. And I'm happy to tell you that he did that. That he did go home before dark. He never did fall into a scandal or any kind of a blotch upon his ministry. Home before dark. God give us the grace to make it home before dark. A lot of pastors and ministers... And children of God in this very, very immoral environment we're living in. who are not going to be able to say that. Yet there's forgiveness with our God, isn't there? And yet it should be our goal to never do anything to dishonor our Lord. Now, Havner was talking about ministry. But, you know, this principle applies to our relationship with God in general. You know, I've really come to appreciate men like Joseph, Joshua, and Daniel who maintain a close, committed, 
and consistent walk with God their whole life. I just love the consistency of some of these people. They did make it home before dark. You know, again, again, guys like Joseph and Joshua, Daniel, or also men like Paul, who came to the end of his life and could say, look, the time of my departure is at hand. I've only got just a short time left on the earth. I know that they're going to execute me soon. But here's what I can say with all my heart. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Again, it seems clear to me from the scriptures that it's not nearly as important to God how well you start as it is how well you and I finish. And I think we need to ask ourselves, am I going to be a a Daniel or a Demas? A Joshua or a Judas? Am I going to be a King Saul who at the end of his life, a life of disobedience and wasted opportunity was forced to say, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Is that what's going to be written on my, as my epitaph on my spiritual tombstone? I didn't go all out. I lived a carnal, half-committed life. I have erred exceedingly and played the fool. Or are we going to be like another Saul who became the Apostle Paul, who again said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith finally. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, our righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who love his appearing. Look, we're done. Let me just finish by saying this. A big part of finishing well overall in life depends to a great degree on how well you make decisions during your daily life. Finishing well doesn't come from one gigantic thing you do. It's from little decisions you make on a daily basis. Listen to what Harry Ironside said, great man of God and Bible teacher. He said, let us ask our own hearts, what kind of Christian am I? Am I living all out for God or am I dwelling on the border of the world? We died with Christ at Calvary when he died in our place. There we were crucified with him. Is this a reality to our souls? When Christians come to me and ask me if there is any harm in this or that, something that pertains to the east side of the Jordan, something in which the world indulges, I say, why don't you ask if there would be any harm in going to a prayer meeting? Oh, they say. Well, anybody knows there is no harm in going to a prayer meeting. Then you have your answer, he said. They would not think of asking the question if there was not a doubt in their minds. When it comes to something of which you stand in doubt, you may be sure it will never help you spiritually. It will never help to make Christ more precious to you. It will never make you love his word more. It will never enable you to triumph over sin. A great many of these things may not be wicked, but are just bordering on the edge of the world, as it were. End quote. In a very real way, the Jordan River in this passage, became the dividing line between total commitment and partial commitment, between God's perfect will and his permissive will. See, the west side of the Jordan, the promised land side, well, that represented total separation from the world. You might call it God's best for their lives. Whereas the east side of the Jordan, 
that represented partial separation from the world, or in other words, settling for less than God's best for their lives. And each of us has to decide what side we're going to live on in our own personal lives. And let me ask you this morning, where are you living? On what side of your own personal Jordan have you chosen to live? Have you chosen to settle down? And if it's the wrong side, ask yourself, is it time to change neighborhoods? You know, we're talking about the preparation for victory. Folks, I don't think there is a greater core issue that will impact the victory in your life as a believer than this one right here. Because you will only go as far with the Lord as you want to go. You will only live at the level that you want to live at. Now, God can lift you and continue to lift you to higher and higher levels with him, spiritually speaking. But I've got to want that. And with, that, with every new level comes a renewed commitment to walk with him more fully, to die to myself more completely, to put his will above my own, and to not get my eyes on things on earth, but set my eyes on things above. That's the key. It's all about commitment. These two and a half tribes, well, they were committed to the Lord, but not fully. Now, we could argue about that, but this is what I feel the Holy Spirit is teaching us. They settled for something less than God's best. This was not the promised land. This was not the place God intended them to live. There's a lot of us who are living in a place that is not overtly sinful. It's just not the place that gives God the most glory. It's not his ideal or perfect will for our lives. We have to ask ourselves and pray about this. Lord, where am I living in my relationship with you? Have I crossed over my Jordan? Am I living a life of total commitment? That doesn't mean we're perfect. That doesn't mean we never blow it. But are we really sold out? Are we totally going all the way with you? Or have we settled into a kind of a mediocrity that is not sinful per se, but is not God's best either? The beautiful thing about it is, if you find honestly through self-examination you're living on the east side of your own personal Jordan, there's still time to move. There's still time to recommit yourself to the Lord. There's still time to repent of the carnality and all and, and get really serious about God. That's what this whole message is about, preparing for victory. It all starts with where you want to live and how seriously you want to take God in your own life. Because God will go with you as far as you want to go with him. And where you want to set up camp, that's where he'll stay with you and do the best he can for you at that level. But where could he take us? If we said, God, I don't want to limit you, Lord. I want to be totally sold out. Where could he take us? How high could he lift us? How greatly could he use us? That remains to be seen. Deal Moody said, it is yet to be seen what God could really do with one man who is fully committed to him. Moody says, by the grace of God, I will be that man. He did pretty well. I don't know if he was the greatest, but I'll tell you what, he does pretty good. That's got to be our heart. By God's grace, I want to be that man or woman. I want to know how high God could lift me if I only was totally committed to him. Father, we thank you so much that you have placed in this passage, Lord, a nugget of gold. A principle, Lord, that really is one of the most important principles we can ever apply into our lives.
Victory starts with our attitude. It starts with our own heart. Where are we with you? How far do we want to go? How much do we want to be used? Are we laying up for ourselves treasures on earth? Or are we really laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven? Give us grace, Lord, to start making wise choices that will benefit our spiritual lives and our families' spiritual development. We just want to be all that you desire us to be. Lord, use us. Strengthen us. And give us grace, Lord, to not hold back at all, but to give you full and total surrender of our lives that you might use our lives for your glory. We thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.